What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I am your host, Blake Howard. Yes, we're back talking heat, but not one of the 166-odd pre-credits minutes of heat. We are talking, in fact, Heat 2, Meg Gardner and Michael Mann's New York Times best-selling novel. Uh, We're now two parts down. We did the prologue in part one in the first episode with John Glynn. We did Gavin Davies um, coming on to talk about part two. Now, we are talking to some dear friends, old and new, on the show to talk about Part 3, Paraguay, 1995 to 1996. First up, Brendan Hodges. Uh, If you know us, you've definitely heard Brendan on multitude of our shows. He's a writer for Metaplex.com. But he has bylines at places like Rodriba.com, Vague Visage, um, and He's often on hiatus. He's a great Twitter follow if you want to follow his great stuff. Doesn't write as much, but he's so prodigiously talented that it just is annoying um, that he doesn't write as much as he should because he's so terrific. We've also got Hannah Blackman, co-host of the Authorized Novelizations podcast. She came on to talk to us as well. Uh, another alum of the episode that I originally spoke to Gavin on. And then finally, we close the episode out, part three in Paraguay, with incredible film and TV culture writer and the current TV critic at Vulture, one of them, but one of my favorite critics of all time, the great Roxana Haddadi joins us again. So I hope you thoroughly enjoy this episode. Um, it's a long one, but we dive into everything. This is a meaty segment and section, and thank you so much for your ongoing support. I hope you're enjoying the series. So now let's go to Paraguay. Part 3, Paraguay, 1995-1996 The morning sky is already glazing white when Chris leaves his apartment. Small traffic circle below shines with cars. The fruit stand across the street is busy. Red dirt, low hills, trees he still can't name aside from the palms. All this green. Mist hovers on the far eastern horizon, rising to the massive Iguazu Falls downriver. He wears jeans, a green polo shirt, a black sports coat, boots. Lock on his hip. Is it business casual? Urban assault dressy? Whatever, it's business as usual in Ciudad del Este. Bolt hole away from home for Chris Chahelis, a.k.a. Jeffrey Bergman of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. El Americano. It was pretty wild. I found many things surprising, um, often in a good way. The book very much seems acutely targeted for the Michael Mann heat (laughs) audience. Um, it reminded me a great deal of Michael Mann's version of Scorsese's The Irishman or David Lynch's 
Twin Peaks The Return, right? In that yes. it's kind of something that looks backwards through his whole career and implements different genres he might have been in, um, different thematic motifs, different visual ideas. Even if this is prose, often he's basically describing things the way he would pitch the way a movie should look almost to like the set decorator, the production designer, the cinematographer is how he would want this to look. So as a Michael Mann person, you know, when he describes the city grid of yes. Los Angeles, we know the type of shot he means, <laughs> you know, um, it's very much a book that does something not many books can do, in my opinion. And again, it's helpful to really know man's work, but it, you very much can see it playing out in your mind's eye as if it was a motion picture, yes. um, which it, it's not always successful in doing that, but it often is. And that made it kind of a thrill where I was almost experiencing a new Michael Mann film in my mind's eye, which was a honestly just a pleasure in and of itself, right? Um, the book itself, um, I found to be quite good. Definitely has some things that I think it misstepped in doing, Um a big one is that I think it it's this awkward thing because a bit too much of it, I think, is trying to recreate heat. Yes. In different ways. And yet there's so much of the book that is very specifically steering away from heat. And that's the stuff I responded to the most. Yes. Um, and the specifically the prequel Chicago stuff Um I found really compelling. I, I liked that. First of all, I'm a Chicago boy. I'm sitting in the middle of downtown as we speak. I love the city. Um, it was really fun to imagine. He's mentioning street names and diners and stuff. And <laughs> I imagine your brain's like Google Maps, just like boom, boom, boom. Like you can see everything that I have to go and Google to imagine. Yeah. I mean, I know the layout of the city pretty well. And it was so easy to orient myself to where different things were happening and the neighborhoods and what was happening in the late eighties versus today, et cetera. And that stuff I just ate up. I, I loved um, the idea of this killer on the loose that is a foil to Macaulay. And I liked seeing these characters at a believably younger version of themselves uh i felt for the most part man didn't get that wrong he no. very much got us to know these people as they would have been half a decade or so before heat but my favorite section of the novel blake is what we're going to talk about today which is basically everything having to do with the character chris yes um i really responded to his overall arc uh leaving la under duress, getting immersed in this new world, and then returning to LA to confront his past with his new identity. I thought all of that was really compelling. And overall, I thought the book did this really interesting thing where it specifically ends the 1980s storyline with this primal thing, where there's this return to nature they're in the desert, they're in these canyons, and the 
so the prequel section almost ends journeying into the past to our primal state, whereas Chris's arc goes far into the future of what contemporary crime is like and what that says about society. Um, I thought that was a really clever design instrument for, excuse me, for man to tie the novel together. Um, yeah, it's his own OK Corral, you know? Yeah. It's just, it, it ends like my darling Clementine. It's like my darling Clementine <laughs> man in, in a Mexicali Canyon in a ferocious gunfight after an amazing incursion on a, you know, uh, um, uh, like a, an illegal monetary la money laundering stronghold. And like then a fortress, the yeah, fortress, right? Yeah, like a, a ho uh, I love, I love a dingy hotel exterior fortress. There's nothing cooler to me than like that. And so there's that amazing action sequence which takes part really in, uh, in in part five. But I love what you're saying here about what becomes the Paraguay sections, and then the uh, CDE, as the book eventually calls it, the Ciudad del Este sequences, because. It's like we have come to know Chris Chehalis after, you know, Heat, and we know he's like a very sharp instrument and he's Neil's right hand. But also the implication is that even by the time we get to 88, these guys are so good. So you, you also like when he's like this crew, like Vincent's great line, which I say about really all of our entire community that are surrounded around one minute, I'm like this crew is good like he is so good he's been sharpening a skill set under incredible circumstances for many years and avoiding you know basically avoiding uh any kind of intervention from police just running wild living these huge lives and so when he goes into this new environment he is so live and able to just manipulate it and he just kind of has this ability to cut through people's bullshit. He can read people almost like he's reading tarot cards and he's a fortune teller. You know, he just looks at people and he just has instincts and has all these skills and tools to go. I'm going to, I know how to break this person down. Like I know how to say a certain thing. And if they don't get the answer right, I'm going to penetrate them because it's wrong. Cause my whole life has been about casing places seeing what the natural state is and then figuring out the wrong elements and then saying, yes, we're going to take it or no. And mostly, no, I'm not going to take it, you know, because that's, that's the risk is going to be too much. Yeah. And I think the thing that really stands out about the early sections for the most part is <clears throat> um, that these characters are simultaneously in a position where they are very good at what they do, but they're in periods of metamorphosis. Yes. Um, and I thought the way man depicted this era for Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley as ultimately periods of transition um, and the obstacles they would have to overcome to evolve, to leave their cocoon to the version that we know of them later on. I will confess, I did think that the book was slightly schematic in how it did that. There's maybe a couple too many callbacks to specific images or lines of dialogue uh, <laughs> that, that do that. But ultimately, I found it very compelling, this idea of Macaulay can't smother that romantic in him. 
Yes. That we know that if he can fall into this thing so easily in heat um, with Edie, we, we know that he has this romantic bone in his body, even if he hasn't used it in a while. And we see what that looks like. And I thought it was particularly interesting to see Neil as this paternal figure, very much like the paternal figure he tries to be for his crew. Yes. And you see him trying to basically play house and live out a version of the American dream that he wasn't living out when we meet him, you know, later on in heat. And likewise, I thought Hannah was curiously almost the opposite direction where he's even more of a lone wolf. He's hunting through the night, um, whether he's literally hunting for a criminal or he's restless. He, <laughs> you know, in very much just him driving around Chicago at 2 a.m. between the houses or apartments of sources, of women, of hospital beds, whatever it is, it has this pulse to it that is so familiar to people who love Michael Mann's work. Um, and I found all of that really, really compelling. I also thought it was really compelling how, in again, the particular case of Chris, we get the meet cute. Yes. And the, I found I, all I, of I that so good. That, that whole sequence, you talk about a scene coming to life. That whole sequence, in even in that brief moment in Vegas, is like a movie script. It is as yeah. that that's the biggest compliment or the compliment you usually don't give to pros is that it feels like a movie script because if anyone right. has ever read a movie script, they're not very jazzy. They're not, you know, they're not fantastically uh, descriptive of particular scenes. You know, the the traditional movie screen or the screenwriting format is like exterior. <laughs> exterior bank you know like day and that's yeah. about as much as you get and then you get kind of from the 1980s you start to see especially with someone like shane black who famously did this like really extremely descriptive uh flourishes about specific spaces places in his scripts you read tarantino stuff there's always this little sort of introductory paragraphs about looks feels music cues you know he's very he's writing very much with the the end product in mind whereas some screenwriters are about story economy and about a beat a beat a beat and like they're not as concerned with those directorial flourishes as they are with really lean mean storytelling and so that's what this book has it does these that's the balance that i think that the book really hits the crescendo for me is when it's able to be lean on the story and doesn't have to do a hell of a lot of descriptive prose legwork and and i think that in the middle section sometimes that's where i you know it sort of slowed down for me but once you get past the sort of setting of the scene of the world this is a fascinating section of the book because it is about a, a per, like a complete fish out of water story and it is about this uh, this kind of lone wolf that is a massive disruptor to this entire ecosystem because he's coming it's like it would be like a professional nba player coming to play park basketball in sydney on a saturday afternoon <laughs> and like you are used to a climate of like how good people can be and then a professional athlete walks in and you're like oh 
I'm not that guy. I, I'm not that person. Where did they come from? <laughs> they are different to who I am. So yeah, I love that about Paragraph. But we get in, we basically start, you know, Chris's, you know, sort of slumping and arriving uh, in the end of 95, adopting his new... Um, adopting his new identity as Bergman. He meets Paolo, who becomes like a sort of central right-hand enforcer too, and they ha develop a strong relationship because there's sort of a code between these two guys. And then we're right in 1996 in Ciudad del Este. He's part of the Lou crime family. He's working as an enforcer, just as a guy that's around security, essentially, for them. We see the, the shape of the whole family. Um, and then he starts to not only meet the Lou patriarch, but his children. Um, so that's where you start to, this story really starts to open up. Yeah. And the, I completely agree. And this section uh, is really when the book had me like sit forward in my seat as I was reading it. The best way I think to describe part three, Blake, is that it begins as an episode of Miami Vice <laughs> and, it, and it ends as an as basically the start of Black Hats. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's very much something that is about a character entering this heightened state. Yes. Um, and <clears throat> uh, there's all of these descriptions that emphasize energy, flow, pulse, uh, movement, rhythm, um, through this whole section. Uh, like early on, um, when he gets there, there's all these descriptions. Even as soon as he gets there, he, he has uh, like a fever. Yes. And it makes it seem like he's in this heightened, more subjective state. And it reminded me a lot of how Michael Mann described the his film, Miami Vice, which as listeners of your podcast know, Blake, I am a massive fan of. It's one of my favorite movies. I think are, it's one of the best movies are, ever made. You are a fiend of Mahitas. I am, absolutely. Um, I, I think that, like, he described that movie with Miami as this opiate, right? Yeah. This idea of the place and the time putting people into this really um, activated state where they're more susceptible to things. And that's exactly how I read and understood Paraguay. Um, and again, there's all these sections where they talk about electrical wires and the pulse of the electricity, the water rushing beneath or beside people, the flow of cars, the flow of people. There's all these things that emphasize that extremely active environment that Chris is becoming more and more immersed in and part of. And I found all that really compelling. And it's especially because this is the section of the book that takes the biggest left-hand turn away from what we would consider the motion picture heat yes. and more into the realm of Michael Mann's work as a whole. Yes. Um, and I, I really appreciated that. And I also think it, it is a little tropey, right? Like, he has to drive the boss's daughter. And as soon as that happens, anyone who's read or seen any amount of crime fiction or cinema can pretty much <laughs> telegraph where that might be going. But the scenes are written with so compelling prose. The action scenes and set pieces of the whole book, you can picture them vividly. 
uh, in your mind. They are incredibly visceral, incredibly kinetic, and you can really picture how man would shoot and execute these scenes as you are reading them. And I really enjoyed how this section begins with him in this heightened state and it ends with Chris being educated about how to uh, move up in the world and stay contemporary and current. You have to look at systems. You have to start <laughs> looking at structures themselves, which the whole chapter basically described in literal terms with this super mall, yes. right? But now it's talking about this in figurative vertical terms within business, within moving things. And we'll see that play out later on in the course of the book. So that's what really stood out to me this section. And it was the first section of the book where I really was like, okay, I'm in. Yes. Yeah. It's because it's really funny. You talk about like a quandary that people have, which is when you're making a sequel, it's like, oh, I want more of that. Right. Like that's a lot of people's inclination. Like I want more of that, whatever, whatever, you know, when my favorite thing, when you think about it, you're like, oh, just, just more, that would be great of the same, but it would be so rote if that's all it was like if, if if it manifested in just that way and it was this big you know this big exercise of reaching what's wonderful is that this is what actually makes the universe expand because you see chris survive and thrive and we we hope you know that the devastating loss of charlene at the end of the movie means that he can get back to the chris that he resembles at the beginning this kind of like you know this ghost he can he's just a ghost he can walk through walk in and out he's obviously really striking so that make that marks him but he's a gambler he, he you want him to be you imagine that he can thrive and you hope that the the fate of him isn't just like he's you know to his ruination he's going to go off and go do something crazy and then you know end up in some gutter somewhere that vincent finds later what's so great is that he gets thrown into this absolutely you know uh it's like a spin cycle of a washing machine. You know, he goes in and he's able to find a way to remain buoyant and do all of that. Um, I, I loved, I love this part of the book because it's like, it asks you, the reader, the question. And I think it asks really people who are familiar with heat, the question of like, are you ready to let this evolve? And it's almost like the beginning of the book is, oh no, we're still, we're still going to do some heat stuff. Right. There's going to be some heat, but if I'm making heat now that engages even five years later with some of this stuff, then the world was changing. We were on a precipice. We didn't really know it. Like you can only get that sort of hindsight when you can reflect on it, like, you know, decades later, we were on the precipice of like this old school gun toting, you know, very classical, you know, and it even ends in the desert. Like we talked about with the OK Corral, there's only so much you can have a gunfight. You can fight a war in the streets. You actually have to, if you want to survive in this contemporary industry, you have to get off the street and you have to start moving money and moving internationally and getting anonymous and doing all those things. And and that's where, you know, another book from the Michael Mann books, a series, uh, Hunting LaRue, which is a, about a real criminal and the real international criminal operation, uh, you know, crime operation to sting him. That's where this book was like, oh, this is the Hunting LaRue of hate. You know, this is him coming in and we just get to orient ourselves with a familiar character, but this is telling a totally unique story. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing that <clears throat> makes it so rich is that, as I said at the beginning, it's kind of a work looking back at Michael Mann's career. Yes. And 
it's very, I think, consciously, like you said, Blake, it's not just repeating heat. It's giving us the heat shits. It's giving us the goods. But it also is giving us different flavors of those ideas or invoking thief. Yes. Or especially in the Chicago section. Oh, or in Thief and Manhunter. Public Enemies. Yeah, yeah, Manhunter, Public Enemies. Um, there's even some sections that I knew what he was doing where he's mentioning the Native American tribes that existed in that same area hundreds of years before. And I'm like, okay, he's going out of his way to bring in <laughs> Mohicans a little bit. Um, I, I understand what's happening here. Um, and in this section, like you said with LaRue, and previously what I mentioned with Public uh, uh, Black Hat um, and Miami Vice, I thought it was very interesting how... The, this section plays out as like a clothesline where Chris is very much a passive character mm. where he's reacting to the environment in which he's been placed in. And for the first section of this, it allows man, I think, to play around with those thematic motifs, those visual ideas that his fans are used to. But it also, I thought, very cleverly makes it an engine of suspense because they say in fiction, you always want an active protagonist. Well, nobody wants to be more active in part yeah. three than Chris. He's frustrated by the situation that he's in and he's looking for any opportunity. And he keeps asking himself, why was I put here of all places? What skill set do I have that I can offer these people, the Lou crime family, that will get me out of being a low level enforcer? And it almost to me plays as this thing where you're like, I know man is building to something. Yes. I know he's taking us somewhere and you don't quite know for a while. Um, I enjoyed that. Chris is very much a fly on the wall in for a lot of this section. And it relies not on the strength of Chris's characterization, which I think is very good in this section, but this is Michael Mann for the first time in the novel saying, if I can't write these other characters um, in a strong way uh, with uh, his co-writer uh, Meg, Meg Gardner, I, I think the thing is, is that the book would not work. No. And he makes us engage with the strength of the location, of the stakes that he organically has built here outside of what we know about Heat. And I thought that was very, very strong. Um and you get all those classic ideas about time mm. and he's haunt and Chris is haunted by, you know, Charlene and what she's doing and his family. And he's haunted by what happened with Vincent Hanna, but he has to internalize all those things. And a particular accomplishment I thought of this section, I'm sure you had this a lot with different parts of the novel, Blake. Um, I could picture an actor having a classic Michael Mann performance of, of like that steely gaze, yes. but showing wells of emotion underneath that gaze. Um, and Chris is very much that stoic on the outside, but absolute mess on the inside. We know from Mann's work. Yeah, I. that's what I think about in these Paraguay sections is what a feast it is going to be for whoever gets cast. It is a feast. It is like, you know, 
Chris Hemsworth doesn't get these moments, like, in my opinion, because of the nature of the story structure of Black Hat, doesn't get as many of these moments. He certainly gets his moments, but one of my favorite scenes in both one of your and my favorite movies, Miami Vice, that the Haiti scene where they walk in and like, how do we know everyone's looking at us three blocks out? And, you know, Jamie Foxx's Ricardo replies, one of my great favorite lines ever and delivers it so on the money. He's like, because everyone's looking at us three blocks out. And I just feel like that's the whole, that's that, that's the thing. The whole thing is he's in a completely hostile environment. He looks different. He acts different. He is different. And at the beginning, he's something who is different, but people don't know how to take him. People don't know if he's a threat. People don't know that. And the growing, I guess, momentum, you know, talking about your words and the movement, the growing movement in the chapter is, oh, he is not just, he is someone absolutely that must be taken notice of. And and that's within the family and external because he is so formidable and he doesn't, he, he shows no fear in any of these situations, even though they are wholly hostile. And there's a great line that he says, or that Chris sort of thinks during the book, which is like, um, you know, he was talking, he's using it to describe Paolo. And he says, Paolo has close quarter combat training like SWAT, but Paolo is Brazilian and Brazil doesn't fight wars. That like Chris fought street wars, Neil McCauley fought both kinds. And yeah. that's the thing is like, he is not intimidated by this urban environment. Um, this beautiful blended urban environment that's right on the precipice of all these natural things. So again, CDE, CDA is like a perfect man location. It's like a hyper city right next to these incredibly beautiful natural phenomena, much like Miami. And so, yeah, that's what I love. I just feel like this is going to be the most impressionistic and expressive thing that is going to get adapted to the screen from Heat 2 because it's not as oriented in specific locations in either los angeles or chicago it's somewhere that's unknown to the audience largely there's a lack of familiarity from a cinematic sense and so you just see this guy as a loner interacting in a completely different world out of out of their step um whether he's ahead of it or behind it and yeah it feels like the descriptions are going to melt away and we're just going to have this magnificent interior performance that is anchoring the whole section of the film that is this this time yeah and i I don't envy the actor who has to pull all this off. Um, I mean, I suppose that's true of all the parts. But one thing I I did highlight a quote from this section that I I honestly thought is the perfect encapsulation of the Michael Mann aesthetic. And it's only uh, like basically two sentences, but they park under a psychedelic sunset, orange, magenta, and a velvet blue in the eastern sky above the emerald countryside. They walk through a vaulted hangar and emerge on the apron. Paolo checks his watch. A massive jet banks overhead, the sun painting its wings with a reddish firebird glow. You know, that perfectly goes into what you were just saying in terms of the the location and how, again, heightened it, it really is and how cinematic it is. And you were talking about the idea of how Paraguay and Ciudad del Este specifically is like this hyper city and a big theme throughout man's work, right? Is how characters often the leads are simultaneously overwhelmed and almost oppressed by these city grids 
yes. that they're a part of. And they're trying to assert agency within those city grids. And you see that repetition through so much of man's work. And that comes back here in virtually every single section. What I found very interesting about part three and also the big action set piece uh, we talked about earlier where they basically assault the fortress <laughs> of the cartel. They man depicts the action scenes, I think closest to black hat of yeah. any other one of his films in the sense where he has the characters and the actors literally through action, navigating labyrinths, yes. navigating these city grids. Um, there's very few big wide open spaces with one exception, which we already talked about, which is the, the OK Corral type shootout in this canyon. But every other major action scene, for the most part, happens within some kind of grid like or labyrinth like setup. Um, and I think that really plays into the themes of what most of the characters are going through in trying to have independence have autonomy, express who they are within these broader schematic systems of man that we have designed. Um, and I, I found that really, really compelling. And of course, the book climaxes at the very end with the big shootout that they cannot move, really. Yeah. It's set to one big location on a highway and it's like the city grid has trapped them and they are trying to get out of it. Yes. Um, and I, I just really responded to the images of this section. And one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, if I could be podcast host for 30 seconds, is... I love this. Did you, did you picture this book as 35 millimeter or as a digitally shot production? Uh, the LA sequences and the Chicago sequences have to be in 35 mil if in, in like that the chicago section elevated rail night the constant thrum or hum i want i want to feel the tactile of 35 mil or even like 65 like get it on like a near imax like look because it just feels like so many of these sequences are just so like that but i feel like i hope that, and and there's some um, there's some really fascinating new bits of tech and I you know speaking to our you know I I think I can say this our old friend because you're such a part of the one heat minute family our old friend Dante Spinotti it was recently chatting to him and I was talking to him about you know upcoming projects that he was working on etc and he was telling me about this bit of kit that's called the Alexa 35. It's a new digital camera that is an Alexa thing that apparently is the closest that they've been able to get really since like the red cameras and those sorts of things that have been on the cutting edge for years, but that is able to imitate 35 millimeter in a digital capacity and give you all the freedom to do it. So I feel like I really, if, if it's nighttime, I know that man's going to use digital. If it's Seattle Estate, just because of the nature of the digit, the this 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 analog to digital theme, as you've talked about implicitly in everything you've said, feels like Seattle Estate needs to be digital photography. It's that kind of heightened, you know. He can make these tweaks. He can do these very um, inorganic, but also organic flourishes. But 
LA is a city that just looks so sensational in 35 millimeter. Like Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth driving a car through LA at night, even though Tarantino is having to dress up parts of the strip or whatever to, to be age appropriate for a period film, which this whole book is ultimately a period. I'm like, there's just nothing like LA at night on 35 millimeter. I know that man is going to want to push it, but I hope it's, you know, with the intent to maintain as much of the, the sensibility of that 35 mil, because even to this day, and I love technology and I love 4k technology, particularly when we get to watch like great stuff on 4k. If you said Blake is a 4k screening of heat or a 35 mil print of heat, I'm always going to the 35 mil. Like if there were two lines, they'd probably be people more digital. They're like, yeah, I'm going to this. I'm going to the 35 mil. I want to see it on film because I just think it's absolutely quintessential to the look of the film, like the limitations of what they would have had to have done to make that work. I, I think it's stunning. But as you know, probably better than anyone, Heat is a more dynamic experimental film with different stocks at different stages of the film to do different things. And I feel like, It'll just be a blend. But I always imagine Chicago feels like Thief and Manhunter. And I want to see it. You know, I want to see some of those Chicago days, the way that light works in the city, the way those sunsets are unmistakable. I want to see that on 35. I want to see LA sunsets in 35. But then the other stuff, I think at night photography and you want to get the whole depth of field of the city and things like that. I feel like man's going to be much more in his Miami Vice mode, but hopefully some of the technologies caught up to his aspiration because yeah, that's, that's, uh, I, I feel like that's, it's going to be a very interesting visual palette for him to, to express. Yeah. What I had in mind reading it similar to what you were saying is what Danny Boyle did with Steve jobs. Yes. Where, you know, each section of the story has a different visual aesthetic um, where it starts off with a more grainy film then it's a more contemporary, clean 35 mil look, and then it ends with digital. Um, I think it would be interesting if man played around with a similar idea here somehow. Um, and I will finally say that, connecting, like, bridging all of his work. Yeah, finally, yeah, like, literally exactly. bridging all of his work. That's exactly it. And the thing that I think is interesting about man is, is always with the digital stuff, and we've talked about this on your other podcasts is man uses digital for the specific digital qualities. He's painting with the digital brush. Uh, yes. Unlike someone like Steve Yedlin, the cinematographer for Ryan Johnson, um, he wants his digital stuff to look very close to film. He has all these complex algorithms and color science things he deploys to get knives out to look like 35 mil. And the fun fact is that The Last Jedi actually has a number of scenes they shot digitally and nobody noticed because he was able to use his color science shit to so clearly mimic 35 mil. I will say, I don't think Knives Out approaches the look of 35 millimeter <laughs> as much as he probably thinks it does, but you, you get my point. Man goes the other direction. And I think it would be interesting, like you pointed out with heat with the different types of stocks, if, Heat 2, if and when it's a motion picture, plays around with different aesthetics within 35 mil and different aesthetics within digital. Um, I think there's a really good opportunity to visualize a lot of the events of the novel 
um, with that. And you can tell when man is trying to invoke a more classic feel. Yes. Very much the Chicago stuff more than anything else in the book. It has this very classic man feel to it. Whereas some of the other stuff has a very contemporary man, late period man feel. Um, I almost wish, and I stumbled onto this talking to you. This is fresh thought. I almost wish that the Mexicali stuff, especially on the border, that that like that desert. I I, I would almost go like, could we just see that in black and white? Because mm. that is the most, you know, one of his favorite films, one of man's top ten of all time, My Darling Clementine. Yeah. And I would love maybe because it feels like it could totally be black and white. It's like, it's 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 two hostile parties going out to a desert trap and getting getting in a getting in a skirmish and i don't know there's just something like i would almost even hope that he tinkers with the idea of how to completely displace the the former uh, in the past um uh, without sort of having to to go through because he he hasn't really done those sorts of like flashbacky scenes before um and i don't know whether he'll think it would distract from the momentum or the energy of what he's trying to produce but i'm like i feel like some of those i can see in this sort of classic black and white in my mind when when i'm thinking about it yeah i I think that'd be super interesting for some reason when i read specifically the attack on the cartel motel um i pictured it in my mind's eye digitally because of how frenetic it is where they're running through the corridors from one room to the other room. And I I imagine the more subjective warped camera that he uses, like think about the um, shootouts in Miami Vice where they have this almost like unnatural vividness to them where they don't look like conventional shootouts. That's kind of what I was picturing. But now that you say black and white, that opens up this whole other <laughs> a- aesthetic possibility that I think is really interesting. Um, I-, I don't know if I want man to go as far as what Andrew Dominic just did on blonde, where yeah. he's mixing formats, almost like free associated, uh, free associative, <laughs> the whole movie. But I-, I do think it would be interesting again, if he did break it down, okay, this section has this aesthetic principle, this section has this aesthetic principle. How do they, work in tandem and i'm very curious about speaking of the movie how this will be adapted because as many people have pointed out uh i think it was even um someone i look up to very much and is a hell of a nice guy brian tellerico from RogerEbert.com. um in his review he even says this feels more like several heat movies not one heat movie and I'm very curious how the active adaptation will be handled because there's just so much here. I mean, just the Chris stuff, just just part three about Chris going into where he goes in the end of the novel, that could be its own three-hour movie. Yeah, totally. Um, and I'm very curious what he will cut and what he will streamline and what he will uh, keep in adaptation because I cannot make heads or tails of how this movie will work structurally. Will it cross cut between all these storylines throughout the whole thing? Will we get a card saying part one, part two, (laughs) you know, what are your thoughts on that? I I think that everything from, so 
I almost think that... I almost think that the 88 parts, like Chris at the fallout, so 95, 96 into Paraguay, all the way up to Chris coming back to LA could could be one storyline and then the 88 storyline could be running in parallel with it. And then there's a convergence and then the whole last part is playing out in its real time. That's where I see it and maybe there's some of these new actors that are briefly taken to recreate a couple of shots from Heat so that they can have the continuity between the current characters and the film rather than immediately just doing flashbacks to characters who don't look the same. Um, they don't have the luxury of a Top Gun Maverick of it all of like flashing back to Tom Cruise and that's young Tom Cruise, you know, or young Val Kilmer. Like they can't, they can't do that because they're not using those same actors. But I feel like they could, could do like a Doctor Sleep yeah. and how that handled the Shining yes, stuff yes, yes. or they just recast certain parts or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Just to do a couple of little tiny things, which I, you know, but both movies, I love Dr. Sleep and Top Gun Maverick. Um, but that ability to sort of recreate a few things. And then I feel like Chris long after and that Neil, um, Neil Wardell story where you're sort of seeing glimpses of Chris in the past. I think that those could totally just be going. They seem like they've got a rhythm that could be functioning along the way together um, but yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more, uh, ability for them to cross cut and come back. And then I think then when you arrive, like, it feels like the, the end of the second act in a traditional movie is like the, is the Mexicali showdown sort of deal. And then it is kind of everything that Chris gets up to here with this conflict. So it's like dueling conflicts across different times and across different continents. And Chris is kind of involved in both of them. And then we come back to Vincent Hanna. Because, you know, Vincent is then the anchor of the movie with Chris and, the, and these two guys coming closer together. So I think it could be, I mean, it, it'd be totally interesting. I would happy to be more traditional, you know, in the parts, but I think it's the the flexibility you have in a film to organically cut back together. Like it's, it goes all the way back to Godfather Part 2, which is like Coppola was, he said when they originally cut in Godfather Part 2, they were cutting too quickly between timelines and that was disorientating people. And they had to actually dial it back. And then once they found the exact rhythm, it perfectly synthesized. And like the movie became the perfect thing that we know that it is today. So I feel like, I think man would more like want to have a little bit of immersion and then come back. And it might not be as rigid as the parts that we see in the book, but it feels like it could just go back, but back and forth and tip tap tic-tac-toe between the timelines um, just because he wants to orient you to a space and a time and a place and give all the actors their choices. He doesn't want to be cutting between two really heightened performances. He feels like he'll like, he'll, he'll keep, I feel like he'll keep like a broadish structure and he might just tinker with how to, you know, go back and forth between the times a little bit differently. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That actually, what you said about Capola with Godfather Part 2 to bring up Ryan Johnson again, he had the same issue with Last Jedi. Uh, he said that he initially wanted them to cut back and forth more rapidly. And I do think in something like this, the book benefits from its uh, structure where you are in one place with a character for a long stretch yes. before cutting to someone else. Unlike something like A Song of Ice and Fire, where you're yeah. constantly shifting POV, um, sometimes time and place. I, I thought this was very effective in how it structured it. I just can't imagine what he would be able to cut to streamline the thing. Because like, if you were to translate this into manuscript, 
to adapt via screenplay, this is more of an eight-episode miniseries than it is a, even a three-hour motion picture, you know? I, I But I feel like at 30 to 40, like, he could, you know, just thinking about the running time, it'll it'll be upwards of about three hours. But I think 30 to 45 minutes in this, you know, especially the Paraguay parts of the book, so much of the description is going to just be experiential. Mm. Like, right. it's just going to fall away. Like, it's going to feel like homework. We're not going to know about Paolo. We're not going to hear Chris's inner thoughts. We're just going to see how people have to react and have to convey this information. And I feel like that's going to be very tactile and just so completely forward moving, like blind, like blinding momentum. Boom, 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 boom. It's just going to... Yeah, but the flip side is that like a description of an action scene can be a paragraph on the page. Yeah. Right? <laughs> But on see on screen, that could be a five, 10 minute sequence, yeah, true, true. you know, so it, it goes both ways a little bit. Um, but I, I'm very curious more than anything else, how man will do it. Thank you so much. You're the best. I love you. Take care. Your hair is looking so gorgeous. I mean, speaking <laughs> of attractive people, Jesus, your hair is looking fantastic. <laughs> Your hair is something I would never get to, but I always wish I don't cut my hair so that one day I hope I just wake up and I've got your Brendan Hodges, you know, Sonny Crockett, you know, long hair. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, I wish I could just wake up and have that look. I don't. So that's that's a burden I've, I've got to take away from this conversation, but you're amazing and thank you for doing this. I love you too, man. Thank you so much for having me back. Now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. You're one of my favorite conversations I've had this year. <laughs> oh. You honestly, your uh, your authorized novelizations podcast, you and the team. Because one thing that people don't realize about One Heat Minute is that one of my favorite things in the world to do was to talk about talk about heat with people who usually didn't like heat <laughs> or weren't as effusive. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that I like. I aspired to do on the show was like I want to talk to people who also aren't huge fans of this because I want to dig into it. Because what's the point of digging into the same thing and having a echo chamber that says this thing's mm -hmm. amazing in fact my favorite thing to do would be like let's talk about this it feels like pretty innocuous minute it's just okay it's a piece of tech you know one minute of something which is like three pages of something you know what i mean like, it's <laughs> right. just like, and and going there's nothing in here that's really for me it's not and then actually digging beneath it and going oh wow there is something in here so we i, I thoroughly enjoyed that so thank you for agreeing to do this since since coming into the heat world how many weird heat bros have interacted with you online zero oh actually. fantastic that's good uh, i think i just don't i'm not visible enough and that's fine with me my greatest fear is some stranger is <laughs> going to yell at me online and make and it just i'm very frightened of like my impulse is to defend myself always <laughs> um and i know that that's a slippery slope <laughs> No, look for one heat minute family. You're good people, so that's <laughs> they're not going to they're not going to worry about that. So, 
I asked you to come back having had a real familiarity with the book. Like you poured through it for, for your show. You, uh, mm-hmm. you and Andrew obviously poured through it and then had two ridiculous heat nuts just like gushing for however long that we were talking. But what really resonated with you having a passive familiarity was part three of the book, Chris Chehalis as a character being off the map, if you like, in mm-hmm. Paraguay, 95, 96. Really, it should just be 96. But it's like three seconds, like two pages of 95. Like it's, he just recovers and then he's in town in, in Ciudad del Este. But can I ask, mm-hmm. since having to pour over it again, did it hit the same this time? And why did this particular segment of the book feel, I don't know, as unencumbered from the heat mythos for you? Uh, this section for me, like the interest of heat too, is like, what is it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you do it? Um, when the propulsive element of heat one is like Neil and Vincent and half of that is dead. Uh, and so, yeah, I Chris is amazing, right? What a character that I was just fascinated by in heat one. And so like, of course it's what's going on with Chris. What's the deal with Chris? And this is the first part where you really get divorced from Neil. What is his life like now? How is he moving forward? And in going through it again, it like brought new shade to it, knowing where it's going, you know, that um, he's totally, we meet him back in Paraguay and he's like lost, not doing anything, not engaging with anyone. He's not like friends with his coworkers. He's living a very like isolated life. And then when Anna joins the picture, she has like big Neil energy, right? She's cool, (laughs) she's chill, she's like good under pressure, but has like an emotional connection with him that he really latches on to. And without Neil, he like doesn't have the boss, right? Doesn't have like a friend who's telling him, here's what to do, here's what our job is. And Anna does that for him and introduces him into the larger world of the International Crime Syndicate, which he finds like very exciting and cool. And so in coming back to it, um, knowing that she is a character who's going to be throughout the rest of the book, who's integral to his story and development and growth, being able to look at her again and see this moment where midway through this part, there's the sort of car chase that she handles with like impressive aplomb. And Chris is really impressed with her. Um, and she has like, like, cool girl. Yeah. He like box instructions into the back. Like, okay, they're on us. Basically we're in big trouble. And she's like, okay. Yeah. And, Compared with her brother, who's her like the big wig, out. who's freaking <laughs> yeah. out, who's like useless in the in the situation. She's like a breath of fresh air in this world of people he's been dealing with who are sort of like showboats. She's very reserved that way. And so it's kind of cool to like see this moment where like that's the pivot point where his life takes a different direction. Like he could have just hung out in Paraguay for a while, done his job, and then maybe left or tried to go back to Charlene or who knows. But this moment with Anna is like the catalyst that breaks his relationship to Los Angeles and gives him this new path and opportunity, Um, which I think is cool. It's like a transitionary moment for him. And there's a moment kind of early on where um, he's talking to Paolo and he realizes that he's not as blank and vacant as he could be in the past that he's like not good at hiding it anymore that he's like changing into this new version of himself which i think is a compelling journey for a guy that we don't in heat one we don't get like an arc for him really in in the same way that we could here and because he's like 
a lead character in this book in a way that he isn't in Heat 1, it's exciting to see the transitions, the growth, the arc, the journey. Um, and I, it's, I don't know, it was exciting. The, the beginning of that process was very exciting to me. So that's why I chose this part. <laughs> you talk so, you talk so sort of perfectly about, he's surrounded by poses. You know, Nate has got him into these crime families, Lou's and Chen's, uh, down in Seattle Del Este, he's in security. He's looking around at a whole bunch of these people and they're all playing he can sort of tell that none of them have had real, as he calls it, you know, Neil, he goes, Neil's fought both kind of wars and I've fought street wars and mm-hmm. have that prison time. And so every single person he sizes up, they are just not worthy. He's like, this guy's a liar. He doesn't, he hasn't done his homework. These guys are liars. They're trying to kill us. And then they're also trying to be nice at negotiation with us. Cause he can identify <laughs> who the people driving, you know, particularly motorbike guy, who's in the mm-hmm. car chase. He's like, oh, there's motorbike guy. I'm going to go and negotiate <laughs> with his um, uh, employer. But I think that you're right. It's like in this moment, I think he's starting to get frustrated because he's not playing with the same caliber of people that he's had to be playing with before. He's playing with new money, new new paradigm who don't have to fight all the time. It's all about money and wheeling and dealing and security and different kinds of crime. And I think that that's so great. And then you're right. When he does get Anna, it's different because he goes, oh, okay. From, the, from second one, he's so bold in the book that mm-hmm. it, it especially like, oh, I, I want to be security. Let me go and pretend to be this guy. Let me go and meet this person. And that's what's actually really exciting. It's like, oh, this is this is the guy that doesn't have anyone saying you should call it. This is him just gamble. Mm-hmm. He's a gambler. I'm just going to, I'm going to go and put it all on black. And if it works out, it works out. But the stakes keep getting bigger. That's what I, I, I think you're really spot on with that in the book. Yeah, it's exciting to see how he is without that guiding hand uh, and that it works out for him is cool. But in this new money world, as you say, like everything's a lot loosey goosier. And if yeah. you're going to try and pull this scam, basically, that they do at the end of the part where he replaces the uh, the faker um, in, in Los Angeles, in the old sort of gang war, you know, bank robber world, that probably wouldn't work. <laughs> But no. it works here and it's like a really exhilarating opportunity. And he sees like a future in this world that he, I think, didn't before. Yeah, he's like the the funniest thing about the heat guys is like when you read it back, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe Chirito. I can't believe Chris and Neil have all been together since 88. Like the first <laughs> yeah. time you read that, you're like, actually you go, oh, shit, like. That's a long time. That's a long time that they're coast to coast robbers <laughs> and staying out of jail. Like you're like, wow. They, yeah. they, like they sound like they've been working together for a little while. And you, but by the time that we get to them, because obviously we can just see it written all over how proficient they are. They mm-hmm. basically don't have to talk to each other. They can just signals. Yes. Nods. Okay. Very, very great. But what's cool is you're like, oh, they've been together for a really long time. So then you would imagine like, yeah, we're a real tight crew, real tight. You know, Wayne Grow is a problem because he comes in and he discombobulates the entire operation because they need mm-hmm. one extra pair of hands. And that one pair of extra hands that has the least important job of crowd control just can't keep his shit together. And that's what's <laughs> great about this is you read it and you're like, oh, it has been really like 10 years 
that he has not been doing, that he's not just been the right hand. Do this, mm-hmm. do that. Here's all the orders. Here's the scores. Here's everything. So he's having to adjust to that. So it's really cool to see him actually get out on his feet here. Now, I do know that there is a part in part three, which we had discussed when we were speaking on your podcast, Authorized Novelizations, <laughs> which is that he actually thinks about Neil when there is a lovemaking scene in this book. Yeah. There's a moment where he, he sort of, Anna's time is luck moment that comes up. He's like, oh, that reminds me of Neil. Or like, we don't have enough time. And I was like, it's, when you said it at the time, it did make me howl. But I wanted to know if, <laughs> because you made such an astute observation that kind of Anna is like taking a Neil sort of place, this weird kind of Charlene Neil role in his life where he's kind of got like a romantic attraction and a charge and there's like, all of that stuff and is actually a boss. Um, I wanted to know if reading it back because you obviously are getting prepped to chat to me, whether that was something that still made you chuckle or you're like, oh, actually maybe it kind of does make sense or is it both? I mean, it does make sense. I do think it makes sense that in this moment where, I mean, Neil has been so much a part of his life for so long. Everything's going to remind you of that person. You know, you spend 10 years with a guy, you have like an anecdote for everything. Everything. It is a little funny um, in that, I mean, we talked a little on Authorized that like Heat is like the American gay classic in a way. It's like very romantic. Uh, And my big argument was like, don't get a girlfriend, just be with Chris. (laughs) Like you have a guy who loves you. Like it's easy. And look, Um, Paolo sounds attractive, like which is his offsider at work. (laughs) He sounds attractive enough, you know? Um, South American, you know, ex-military sounds attractive, like a, you know, I mean, yeah, (laughs) that Chris isn't like just sleeping his way through Paraguay, (laughs) like good for him. He could, he's a hottie, you know? Oh my God. He's mysterious. That's (laughs) that's the thing. Yeah. It's Uh, (laughs) that uh, there are no bad takes about heat being a classic. Can I say there's there's an amazing comedian, Chris Fleming. I'll go on the record and say he's like, he's theory that um it's a psyop that heat 2 is had came into existence to make men read and that <laughs> and that heat is the greatest american gay classic is one of the funniest clips on the internet i i truly love it and i'd say that as a person who loves this movie that that take is hilarious heat 2 just came out and i'm having a hard time feeling like it's not like a government program meant to ramp up male literacy It just seems unnatural to me. Heat, for those of you who don't know, is a closeted classic. It's a film about Al Pacino and Robert De Niro lusting after each other, and it's set to a synth score that makes me want to crash my car. It is one of the all-time great gay American films. If you haven't seen it, it's about to be spoiled, so you need to turn me off. If you haven't seen Heat, turn me off, and you want to have it not be spoiled. Pacino plays a cop, and De Niro is a thief, but like a Virgo thief, very professional, very organized, so good in a way you're kind of like, can't we just let him do it? It seems important to him. But Pacino's like, absolutely not. Pacino's vibe is, his energy is completely unhinged. It's like an aunt at a wedding. He's just screaming random prepositional phrases. He's making no sense. He's, He's got the bouffant of a former nun. 
It seems like he's being puppeted by Brian Henson at many times throughout the film. Chris, do you mean Jim Henson? No, no, no. I mean Brian Henson. De Niro, on the other hand, he's a, he's, he's, a, he's a lot more quiet. Both of their vibes are very disconcerting, but De Niro's in more of a quiet hell. His hell is more internal. The only time these two men find any peace at all is when they meet together in a diner over coffee. Pacino is hunting De Niro. De Niro knows this. It turns him on immensely. Pacino pulls over De Niro. He asks him out to coffee. He obliges. They go. It's the only time we see these men smile throughout the entire movie. They're talking dirty to each other. Filthy, filthy chat. I'm going to catch you. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're not going back. Their Pacino and De Niro glands are expanding like bullfrogs. The table's about to tip over. These guys are one tiramisu away from creating the first male pregnancy. This is the first time in an hour that we've seen Pacino sit still and stop bouncing around like a fucking fraggle. He's, he's calm, but he's stimulated. He's still perky, but he's calm. It's, uh, one shared dessert is all it's going to take for these two just to touch spoons. Boom! They're going to jump across the table, tear each other's men's warehouses off with their teeth, and have full-on Pacino intercourse and De Niro intercourse right there in the diner. This is unsafe tension. Chemistry pulsating. The only time in the film that we see them at peace. Oh, Chris, what about the time where De Niro is looking at the sky with his gamer girlfriend? Don't give me that. Don't, don't come into my house with that. Don't come into the brush telling me that. De Niro meets a, a, a graphic designer in this like WeWork Barnes and Noble cafe, and it's, it's they have they have no chemistry. It's very much like George Michael and his wife that he throws snowballs at in the last Christmas video. It's a mess. It is a mess. The only time they ever talk, they they, they, they mute they mute it out and they just blast synth over it because De Niro's probably just explaining the plot to an I Love Lucy episode. She's got like Felicity hair. She's like, he went to Folsom. She's like an Oberlin grad. There's, there's nothing, he has, there's nothing. He just wants, he just wants to piss off Pacino. He doesn't, there's a crucial moment where De Niro robs his last bank and he can get on a, a, a plane that's chartered by John Voight and he and his gamer girlfriend can go to Paris to start fresh. He's driving on the 105 to the airport in silence with, 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 with his girlfriend and you see you see him start to realize I can't I, 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 I can't this can't work for me I, this, I don't want I don't want to sit and talk about magical realism over mimosas I don't want to talk about how hear how nourishing bone broth is I want to share a bulldog with Pacino I don't want to hear about how nourishing bone broth is I want I want to Watch I Love Lucy in matching robes with Pacino next to our wheezing bulldog. Hey, De Niro, you want to meet my friends? They're all midwives. No, I want to rob a bank so that I can cook Pacino's goose. What was that, baby? Nothing, baby. I got tickets for us to go see Fiona Apple. All I want to do is piss off Al Pacino. So in a moment of clarity, De Niro's like, I don't want to go start a not-for-profit with Edie here. <laughs> so he pulls over. He's like, one second, baby. And he goes into like a Radisson, causes a ruckus, pulls the fire alarm. Pacino wakes up in his nest, floors it over, chases De Niro around LAX, ultimately kills him. And De Niro dies in Al Pacino's arms. And the song that they play 
during during this scene. It's about 30, it's, it feels like 30 minutes. It's, a, it's an operatic synth ballad. It, it's just Moby playing a synth patch with broccoli florets. He's doing, he's doing, a cauli, he's doing the cauliflower arpeggiator for, it makes Einstein on the beach look like uh, the Cars for Kids jingle. This song, it's, it's never ending, and it's so melodramatic. Like, this is, I guess it's sad, but it's not that sad. And Pacino's bouffant is just going wild at Terminal 5. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's not ideal to be shot by Al Pacino at LAX, but like, nowadays that's an Airbnb experience. That's something people would pay $80 for. It's like swimming with the pigs. That's like something a Time Out LA would put in the top 10 things you got. Griffith Park Observatory, Haunted Hayride getting chased by the Heim sisters, get shot by Al Pacino at, at LAX. It's sad, but it's not that, it's not. Unless you take it into consideration that this is that it, this is a love arc, and in which case, yes, this is two men tortured by their quest for something that they only find in each other, and by that point, their both of their lives are too far gone. Yeah, that's that's very sad. That is very sad. That get the, get the cauliflower arpeggiator going. Oh yeah. So don't show me uh, heat too, unless it's Pacino and De Niro living in a revised future in 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 Florida as realtors, and once a week they chase each other around downtown Orlando. I don't think it takes anything away from the no, movie. Is it the doesn't. thing like there's? It's not. It's it's a joke, sure, but it's based in the text of the movie. <laughs> it's like a very romantic movie about men whose most important person in their life is another man (laughs) and either you can read that romantically or sexually or just you know like bro stuff but it's very powerful these relationships are very meaningful to these men and i love that i love that your academic reading is like these are the most important things or you can consider it as head bro stuff it's just like you can just dismiss it categorically or you can actually go okay i understand and that's why it's it's one of my favorite readings because it's just it's too (laughs) funny because he like um yeah his descriptions of vincent hannah as an aunt at a wedding is an (laughs) all-timer um but it's yeah i i think it's there and what i what I like about Chris and what I love about this is you don't kind of realize, but I think you put it into perspective really succinctly is this is a rudderless guy for whatever reason from 88, he meets Charlene. He makes a massive gamble, takes her away from escorting in Vegas. She begins their life together in LA around that time. So we know that she's been with him for at least seven years. Dominic's, you know, four or five by the time we meet him, when we get to heat, his entire crew is dead. His best friend is gone. His wife and, you know, real real best friend, real sort of soulmate, and their son, gone. And he's completely rudderless. And then watching him try to navigate the situation where there's all these poses, it's mm-hmm. just like the only the only thing that he can start to do is gamble. He's like, well, I can't just sit here and be security for these idiots because I'm probably going to die, you know, because there's too many risks. These guys can't see the forest from the trees. And... Mm-hmm. The fact that by the time that we exit part three and Chris is established in this world, I think that's what gets me really exciting. And I also like the paradigm, the clash between this kind of modernity um, of, you know, contemporary crime, digital, using different, you know, international, um, international currencies, international 
manufacturers to do one part of X to deliver to another place to give you the Y. And this sort of really complex system that at the end of the day still requires people with guns to protect yeah. the operation. And it's just mm -hmm. like, that's why these things have this harmony. Like Chris's company is like, oh, well, they need security. They need to actually protect their operation. And that's what I can bring these people. Because mm -hmm. if I know about anything, it's about fighting how to stand on a street corner with a gun and hit just the right people <laughs> yes yeah exactly and not that not the innocent people we only can shoot at the cops that's the <laughs> of course of course <laughs> yeah it's very exciting to see to see him go in this section from totally disconnected from the larger business can't find a place in this world to a real sort of like this is my role this is where i thrive this is how i make this work for myself and and make myself valuable here yeah. And I think it's funny because at the beginning of the book too, he's talking about, it's like, why did Nate send me here? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like a kind of cool thing to think about later when they encounter each other again. And when they interact, it's like, why would he send me here? I don't know why I'm here. Maybe some guy's doing him a favor, but I think it's also, it speaks to kind of like, if you're a fixer who does nothing but fix stuff, you would go, these big money operations, they all still need hide guns who can actually do the thing that none of them are equipped to do, which is spot dangerous, <laughs> spot incursion, like do this thing. So then it actually becomes like a, a kind of cool thing from Nate. Like, oh, Nate, Nate saw a gap. So it was like a recruiter. He's like, oh, you're yeah. really good in that. It's um, a good placement for you. You're going <laughs> to find it. It's going to be a rough transition. And then you're going to really settle in and hit the groove. <laughs> Hannah, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much well, for doing this. Thank you for this. having me. This was really exciting. <laughs> no, look, it's it was an absolute pleasure talking to you and Andrew on your show. And um, I loved your different opinion because I loved, I think what you kind of crystallized for me is that like, and when you're reading it as a Heat fan, there's obviously that inclination of like, I'm reading this. I do kind of want them to play the hits. You know, mm -hmm. there's sort of that, there's a weird thing that happens when you're watching a sequel to something you love. You're like, I want to play the hits. I want to, I want the characters to be familiar. I want this to work. And I think that once you do it, you realize, oh, I don't want to play the hits because it just feels rote. It feels repetitive mm -hmm. and it feels boring. And so for me, actually the things like watching Neil and his crew be amazing in Chicago is great because I want to see Chris, but also it's like the, the thing that's so different is Vincent Hanna and Chicago PD and all the wild shit in that corrupt police division that is going on that's yeah. new and then what's new is chris being off the map that's new um and so then all of that stuff actually coalesces to like and then now chris is a boss heading in towards the end of the book and i thought you had a really it was really good to chat to you and i thought you're really really sharp and um i appreciate you being part of the book club here to sort of tread over some old territory that we talked about on your show because you guys are like a living book club um and so we're sort <laughs> of uh, we're, we're, so, we're sort of we're sort of coming in to your territory only ever so briefly to talk about this book um but thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me um it's always a pleasure yeah well thanks for having me a pleasure on my end as well <laughs> One of my favorite writers, one of my favorite people online is my guest today. And particularly because 
the torch of Glenn, <laughs> the torch of Glenn Powell as Christian Hairless has firmly been stoked and lit and had napalm poured on it by my guest, Roxana Haddadi. It's so nice to be talking to you about Heat and Heat 2. Thank you for being a part of the Heat 2 book club. And one of the people who, when I announced this, was like, when are we fucking doing this? Okay. When are we doing this? I am ready. My body is ready. And I was My body is ready. Every part of me. I think I immediately slid into your DMs. Like, even, even the Twitter, like, code was like, she's going too fast. This is too too much I, I was like this is the other thing i was like does she think she hasn't got a written invitation ready I know, you know what i mean it's like an elaborate, one of those elaborate wedding invitations you're like this costs 300 like i was just like i was building the invite list you were already on it you didn't ever need ever well, to slide in it you. was just gonna happen it had to happen thank you thank you so much what was your feeling i guess immediately knowing that there was going to be a heat two book and then when the feeling when you finally had it in your hands was there fear was there like oh please don't mess this up like had how much had you heard what were you thinking i think the fear and the please don't mess this up was immediate right because we've seen so many legacy sequels that have failed yes and are just sort of banking on our innate nostalgia for this product. I mean, we had Independence Day, we had the Men in Black attempted reboot. Like there was a two to three year span where everything from 20 to 30 years ago was getting a second installment. Yes. Um, so I was a little bit wor wary and worried about what Heat 2 could entail. But I think I sort of almost forgot about it. Yeah, like, yeah. I sort of thought it was one of those things that, like, Michael Mann had announced and actually was not doing. Yes. So then when it re-emerged and was complete and I could pre-order it from Target, uh, <laughs> it, it was pretty much an immediate purchase because I thought, okay, well, whatever. It's $20. I've spent $20 on stupider things. <laughs> When it Did arrived, I? yeah, right. When it arrived, uh, literally the day it arrived, I tested positive for COVID two days after we saw Rage Against the Machine. So I was like, you know what? This is actually great because I can just read the book. And then I was very irritated that I read it so quickly that there were still like eight days of COVID <laughs> to go. <laughs> <laughs> I could not put it down. I loved it so much. I mean, you can like see I brought it with me for our right. recording. And these are all of the like pages that I like folded over with I love stuff that. that I like. Love and that. it was just I I was really excited by the format. I didn't realize we would be jumping through time. Yes. I liked that we got a lot of different character perspectives. And I sort of loved how clearly it was Michael Mann revisiting an iconic work, right? And putting you back in that like 1990s, 1980s period of time, narratively, but also how much it felt like even a continuation of Black Hat yes. and a manifestation of his current ideas, which are about tech and the internet and sort of how 
web connectivity has changed everything, like how we live, how we wage war, how we do business. So as a sequel to Heat, it's amazing. And also just as a way to dig further into the storyteller that Michael Mann is right now. Yes. I think it's just a very impressive piece of work. Yeah, I think it it's something that's come up on the book club a few times, but it's the approach that you can look at him saying there's still, you know, with any thematic preoccupations that happen with certain filmmakers or, you know, mm -hmm. showrunners, etc., you can kind of see them maybe riff on it on a same theme in another way or a new try and take a new perspective on it of it and it feels the greatest like clarity and linkages between the you know the collaterals of it all or the miami vices or the black hats you can sort of see that and even you know just the idea of like public enemies that you're a bank robber and you're a bandito in a world where like you make 50 times what you make on the biggest bank robbery day of your life every day from gambling money yeah so so there's no point in getting a gun and risking people's lives and going in and causing all of this hoo-ha and this uproar and engaging all of these law enforcement agencies. It's better for us to operate on the fringes and just make money hand over fist. And so it's all of these kind of new thematic things. And the other thing is much like, and I haven't really said this, but it's like, it's one of the kind of strokes of luck and genius of the one heat minute and of like all the president's minutes is you're doing it through the portal rather than a minute or 60 seconds of footage you're doing it through the portal of characters that we know and understand so you yeah. kind of immediately have this entry point into this maybe something that you would not immediately bridge the gap between this sort of classic good versus evil cat and mouse bank robbers versus cops story of heat and you just take it through the prism and everything follows to its logical end. And it's like right from the very beginning, it's like, can we, you know, you know, even in the 1988 segment with Kelso, oh, we found these bank records. That means that money's being laundered. We've found something. We've got a physical printout that we've had to figure out and do some sort of investigation on how to get there. And then you come into Paraguay and I love what you said also about perspectives. I mm -hmm. feel like every, maybe because you and I are such Michael Mann dads, um, both mm -hmm. figuratively and literally, um, mm -hmm. that we look at it and it's like every part of the book has its own feeling, has its own texture. And then by the time it synthesizes into six, it's like, oh, this is all of the ideas in one melting pot and it somehow coheres. It's like all these flavors yeah. work. Um, but yeah. so much of the book leading up and we get to the third part of the book, which is such a defining feature of the book, it's it's so cool to watch how he's like okay this is how i'm gonna this is how i'm gonna get all these ingredients together before i finally mix everything up mm -hmm. and also the thing that's really interesting about three just compared with heat and sort of who michael mann how he crafts these characters is we've talked a lot when we talk about david fincher uh, with how interested Fincher is at people who are very good at their jobs. And Michael yes. Mann is exactly the same right, way, yes. right? Like the characters that we meet are usually highly skilled, incredibly trained. They can look at things analytically and understand them or understand what they don't understand about them yes. and how they need to learn and change. So we're very used to Michael Mann characters as insiders Yes. And we immediately trust them because of their expertise. What's really interesting about three is we meet Chris at a time and in a place where he is completely an outsider. Yeah. Like he has been brought to this place because of his connection with Nate. He's been given a job. 
Uh, it's basically like a, hey, all of your friends are dead. Here's an opportunity. <laughs> like, he's, make he's, of it. His anonymity and to be a security guard in Seattle Del Este. No one's going to be looking for you. You are absolutely a fish out of water, but fortunately, you're in one of the most highly ethnically diverse cities on planet Earth. And hopefully, mm. the the swarm of people that are there are going to distract from the fact that you do hold yourself like someone who has murdered people. (laughs) Yeah. Like who has murdered people very easily. Yes. But ultimately he is an outsider in this section until he's not right. And so that turn is very interesting and we'll talk about it, but it's also just fascinating to spend time with this character as he's on the fringes, as he's trying to figure out, do I want to get inside? If I get inside, what do I need to learn? What do I need to know? Uh, And I like that we, like you mentioned, there's a brief amount of time that we're in 1995. So he's feeling the pain of being separated from his family, not knowing if he's ever going to see them again. He has heard that Neil has died, right? Everyone has died. And so you get that brief moment where he knows the gravity of the situation that he's in. His wound is infected. He might die. And then we sort of jump forward to 96. It's months later and we learn that he has healed and he's now in this place where he has to work a little bit. Yes. Like there's a paragraph about how Chris is like, oh, now I, I run, I work out. Like when we were in prison and people had to work on their minds and their bodies, that's what I'm doing now. It's sort yes. of my, uh, he's not necessarily in a, physical cell of course but he is in this place of separation and he needs to find like discipline for himself and i love getting that perspective for a character who in heat was very much a live wire like yes. that's exactly why val kilmer's performance was so perfect and so frightening because you knew that he was capable of things tom sizemore was great because tom would give you that look that was like don't, <laughs> yeah. don't like don't fuck with me but kilmer was also frightening because he was this like shark and man even describes him as that i think in part one or part two yeah this like dead-eyed surfer so now you're understanding like what's happening behind those dead eyes and it's just very compelling and if anyone knows roxana i imagine your face with certain takes that appear online (laughs) as the tom size it's just like the fuck so good what (laughs) a perfect what a perfect (laughs) moment thank you tom thank Thank you you. for that well Mm -hmm. And, and that's what's so great here. And I love, there's just something that now that I've been thinking about it and excited to talk to you about it, mm-hmm. I love that he's, as far as language, he's got, got a rudimentary understanding of the language enough to right. get by. He's in a place that is completely uh, unfamiliar to him. But what's so good, especially as he's get, regaining his discipline, is there becomes this universality in the way that people communicate because danger has a language yeah yeah and chris understands that and so when you see these people who are starting to break through this paradigm there is this that's the conflict the conflict is in these inherent environments where you trust people and you live in this environment and you trust and you're like yes i'm going to trust these people i'm going to pay this guy at this location to do this job and then 
he's going to send this thing to this factory. It's going to get made. It's going to get shipped to a delivery person for me. I get it. I sell it or whatever the case may be. And then everyone makes money. It's like there's in this illegal activity, there's a hell of a lot of implicit trust that goes on. And there has to be. Has yeah. to be. And yeah. the, the trust is we're all going to make money. So just shut up because we're all going to make money. And yes. I think that that's a, capitalism baby um and uh it, it's it's that it's naked capitalism but what's so great in this part is that chris starts to understand that there is there is physical danger and stakes that so many people are blind to that chris mm -hmm. is not blind to he is mm -hmm. aware of it and that's that's the way um uh you know uh, there's a, a little line on 167 He's where, where a couple of lines where he's describing, he's like, the cashier's till accepts cards in four currencies. In the alleys, styrofoam packaging is piling up. It'll be six feet high by 5 p.m. Then the cardboard and styrofoam um, pickers and sweepers show up. By midnight, the streets are completely clean. Someone makes money from taking the packaging. In the coffee house doorway, an armed guard slouches with casual menace. And I'm like, are That's... you going to keep going? Because that, the next part of it is great too. Yes. It's the flip side of law and order. Organized crime openly runs business and industry. The only norms enforced here are clan norms. And in the preceding page, as you had alluded to, he passes the cathedral. Capitalism is Ciudad del Este's true, fervent faith. But the church stands there with its black river stone and wild, abstract, stained glass, blazing candles and dimly shining gold. It hisses the history of this place. The dark, sacred, forest craziness of the Spanish mission fathers and the indigenous people they confronted, saints and martyrs and mysticism. So there's a lot of strangeness here, right? I mean, it is yes. so different from the California that Chris knows. It is this verdant sort of unknowable place like you said where he is separated by language there are a lot of different ethnic communities that he's not part of we also get the list of those people syrians chinese koreans lebanese brazilians so he is in this place where he has to chart his own path and like you said criminality is very <laughs> known to chris yes. and the trust that you have to place in these people is very known to chris so i love that we meet like paolo who is his boss yes in uh serving the lou family i love paolo uh, paolo's paolo a cool is great paolo is a badass paolo's, character yeah paolo is very cool and paolo is interesting because uh he has like a military background right yes he is somebody who the lou's trust uh in a very distinct way he doesn't know if he can trust chris but there is sort of a begrudging uh acceptance of each other and then in this chapter when chris identifies something that paolo sort of brushed off and then chris takes it directly to the lou patriarch there's also that respect of like hey you did something right I fucked up by not seeing it. Thank you for trusting yourself that happens with Paolo. And yes. then from that moment on, it's like... They're boys. They're boys. They're boys. Like, yeah. They fit together. It's, it's almost... It's not exactly Neil and Hannah, no. but it's a similar sort of thing where it's like, I understand what you're about. You understand what I'm about. And we have like a shared, uh, a shared style in which we see the world. 
Yes. And each of us is lucky that the other person is aligned with us rather than going against us. Because, because that's the cool thing about power. You expect that there's going to be this, uh, I know sometimes you like meet a character and you're like, oh, there's going to be conflict here. And then yeah. when there's not, it's a really nice undercutting of that because it's like, oh, you spotted, you spotted danger that I didn't know was there. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, oh, so you're an asset you're an asset yeah. now so then it's like okay cool we can be boys like it's fine it, it it completely um it completely makes sense and so you're not somebody that i just have to tolerate yes and i think that's sort of paolo's vibe from the beginning is like here's this guy i don't really understand why he's here or why we're taking care of him people tell me that he's an expert at security <laughs> i haven't yet seen it you know, like we we entered the story in a place where Chris has not yet proved himself and he's getting antsy to do that. There's a great uh, and, there's a great line about Paolo. It says, Paolo's ex-Brazilian Air Force, para-SAR. Paolo's a lethal man with skills prized by the Luz family. Muscle, brains, and deference. Paolo's smile yeah. is disarming. He never gives it to Chris. Yes, I love that. I love <laughs> Just that. never gives it to Chris. Yes. And there's a line later on in this chapter that uh, is also a description of Chris's smile and how it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. So there's also this similarity with the two of them where I'm sure when you see them, you're like, okay, yeah, this person is capable of some shit that I don't entirely understand. And their confidence is what's unnerving, right? Like, that certainty of self is what makes other people uncomfortable. I've tried to figure out who Paolo could be in an adaptation, and I have not yet found an answer. It's a hard one. It's a hard one. Uh, it's, I don't and know. It's, and, and knowing Michael Mann, it's got to be some terrific up-and-coming Brazilian actor. Yeah, you know I mean? it has like, to be, yeah. There's, I mean, Brazil's a, a massive country. Mm -hmm. All Brazilian men, for some reason, are hot. Um, as a person who's <laughs> done Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, <laughs> as a person who did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like all of them are hot. It doesn't They're make any sense. And I'm like, stop. No. Okay. Can we just yeah. stop? Can one of Do you less. be ugly? Yes. Can, can one of you be ugly because the accent and the, yeah, anyway. So the face, the whole thing, <laughs> everything. Pressure, pressure, Blake, pressure. Um, so yeah, it's that those guys, they're just good. Um, but it's we'll, we'll eventually we'll eventually get to we'll eventually get to uh, some of those conversations about mm -hmm. uh, fantasy casting heat mm -hmm. too. But but one of the things that I like here is that eventually, and it's just that it's it's much in the same you know, that great line that Neil's like, Jesus, what the fuck? Like, where did this heat come from? Right. And it's, and it's I feel like. Chris gets this moment because he starts to see the Chen family and the operatives that surround the Chen family who are against the Luz, who he and, and, and Paolo work for. He starts to see these incursion possibilities. He starts to see these people on the fringes starting to exploit them. And then eventually we see this American businessman in inverted commas coming down and he's like, you are starting to become bigger and having a bigger influence and pull, which means that the attention that you're getting and the fact that people know your names and know who you are and know where you're operating means that you're now vulnerable because you're starting to disrupt something, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think I, I like to think of the world of like Sicario, just how embedded different, you know, American intelligence operatives are with these apparent, uh, you know, drug war cartels or, you know, coup attempts in South America, which I think is 
is some of the subtext that's running through here is like there's always some american power broker that is trying to infiltrate and 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 cause disruption or to at least get their hooks in and so Mm -hmm. as soon as that starts happening you see that where chris's implicit value is because he just goes like he can spot what's wrong something's wrong about this person something's wrong and then he gets his chance he really gets to then go oh i can do this and after he starts to see this he's like i'm starting to see threats emerge and you guys just aren't aware of them i'm going to bring this to your attention and then it, it means a whole pivot in our approach of how we're going to do it because this is how people get got. Mm-hmm. I think all of that is interesting because I I think of Michael Mann primarily as an American filmmaker. And by that, I mean, in my mind, his movies are mostly about American capitalism and American competition. But the reality is that Miami Vice, Black Hat, and now Heat 2 are far far more interested in these topics on like a global scale. Yes. Which is why it's really fascinating that Chris, as our American character, is the outsider in this place that uh, is pure, unfettered, inclusive globalism (laughs) right where it's like all these people who are not from this place who have sort of set up shop here because in a way they also are exploiting who lives here and the fact that it is sort of like this no man's land right um but what you're seeing is like chris's americanness becoming an asset in a place where in this specific moment of time america does not really matter yes right so it's really interesting that it's like uh, the frontier again it's like the frontier it's like you just as you were saying that i was reminded from the amazing ian mcshane line reading as al swearinger and he's like he's having a sip of a coffee he's like we're gonna form a fucking government and then he just walks out it's like it's like it's like we are just we this town like if this is the game that we have to play to keep to maintain this racket we're gonna yeah. form a fucking government and so the yeah. you know the chens and the lose they've like they're in at city estate that they're, they're their hooks are in they're tied into the government agencies whatever the case may be they're there making money for that town casinos you know mm-hmm. freight shopping all malls the, shopping malls yeah whatever property yeah all that stuff they're just like we have ingratiated ourselves into this and it's like this new paradigm of like oh there is more control there's less frontier and it doesn't matter if it's not necessarily an individual country it's the way that those countries now interconnect which is fascinating and so yeah you mm-hmm. see that it's like you know my one of my big jamie fox like arms from the ukraine like he's just talking about like that he's talking about this new globalized criminal footprint that has to operate on these fringes and still in these frontiers that are less governed in order mm-hmm. to penetrate like the more established governments because the corruption is you know <laughs> i might be saying something controversial the corruption is just a little bit more overt than say the implicit <laughs> corruption that happens in civilized society elsewhere you know it's it's not yeah. as uh, it's not as structured and you know people think- at least a bit freaked out by it I think we'll put civilized in quotes there. <laughs> Arguable yeah. how civilized any place is really. Yes. But yeah, I think what you're saying is that uh, we're in this place right now where uh, criminality is commercial. 
Yes. Everyone knows that they're playing by the same rules and everyone is sort of on even footing regardless of their nationality or their ethnicity or who they were in their country of origin. In this yes. place, everybody has the opportunity to make money uh, and everybody is taking the opportunity to make money. So Chris being here, uh, it feels like uh, maybe I'm intuiting too much but it, never it, feels, <laughs> it feels like uh america and american muscle and american knowledge is sort of unnecessary in this place and when chris arrives i think that's part of why paolo is like who cares about this guy you know what i mean yeah, it's like yeah. we don't we don't need this perspective until suddenly they do yes and then i think you're getting the opportunity through Michael Mann and Meg Gardner's development of this character. Again, you're getting more of a history of Chris's prison time, what he learned, perhaps some of the other scores that he and Neil had pulled together. Cause he knows all this stuff, right? Like he knows the stuff about the border, about the gangs who run the border, about uh, like prison code about the military like there are all these different angles of the information that chris is putting forth that is just another richness to the tapestry of this character yes. uh, so i love that element of it i will say i think the book is very uh for the most part i think the book is very straightforward but I had to reread portions of this section to fully understand what the American buyer was there yes. to do. I thought that he was... Okay, so some of the things... Let me back it up. So some of the things that Chris notices that are wrong about this guy. Some things are small. Like he yes. notices that he wears a shiny watch. Yes, uh, whereas somebody who actually would be maybe going out in the middle of the night to oversee stolen merchandise or to conduct an illicit buy at like midnight would not be drawing visual attention to yourself. So you would not be wearing a shiny watch. Yes. So there's, there's small details like that. And then as I mentioned earlier, there are other things where this guy... Uh, his passport is wrong, right? Like, yes. it's clearly a fake passport, but it's not a great fake passport. So if you're saying that you have all of these connects and you're representing a specific Mexican cartel, we know the power of the Mexican cartels. Why is your paperwork sloppy? <laughs> yeah. So there's all, they're all just like very uniquely American things that Chris picks up on. I thought that this guy was like an American rando who the Luz had hired and set up from the very beginning. So I thought I thought his cartel story was completely fake from the beginning. Yes. The Chens had hired him to pose as a buyer for the Lu family, and then he would take the intel provided by the Luz and sell it to the Chens. So I thought that it was a setup by the Chen family from the totally, beginning. Totally valid reading of that, yeah. Because okay. he does go and visit them. Uh, he gets tortured and murdered. So, <laughs> sorry to that man. Sauce. Goodbye to you. Get better, yeah. get better fake passports, I guess. 
get better paperwork. Like it's yeah. like super simple. But again, in typical uh, Michael Mann fashion, the character is just off the board. There's yeah. not much more discussion of what happens to him. Yeah. Yes, Michael Mann is fantastic at these like bloody protracted street battles but every so often there were characters that you saw and then you just never saw again because yep. to the people in power they were no longer relevant yes so this man shout uh, out to jeremy piven um right for that very yeah way. for that very reason <laughs> yeah. uh but yes so this man so chris correctly identifies that he is fake yes. uh the lose get rid of him and then chris goes undercover as this man to go meet with the Chens, right? So Chris is putting his like neck out on the line to sort of secure trust, secure promotion to go back to what you said, like in this world where no one is putting forth like a resume or a CV of their <laughs> greatest hits. Here's my, by all... here's my bylines. I, I robbed this bank in LA, you, mm -hmm. you didn't, that's not there. You didn't hear me? Yeah. <laughs> it's all uh, word of mouth. So yeah. he is doing this to further ingratiate himself. At this point now, Paolo trusts him. Uh, and so he meets with the Chen family. And this is really efficient storytelling because we don't know much about either family yet. But what we have learned about the Luz is, again, sort of this sense of discipline, that the patriarch is very uh, measured. Yes. Uh, and also sort of old world. He has a daughter who clearly has a head for business, but he prefers his firstborn son, which Chris from the beginning sees as sort of the incorrect judgment call to make. Yes. Um, but then when we meet the Chen's, uh, Chris immediately gets another bad vibe, right? He identifies one of their henchmen as someone who carried out like a street hit. Uh, and we meet the firstborn son of the Chen family. I don't know if you have that description ready, but it's sort of hilarious. I don't know if we no, want I know. to. Yeah, let, let's, let's talk about him. Yeah, please tell me your thoughts on... Uh, Tell me your thoughts on him as I find this passage. He's kind of, you know, uh, what I've said about Felix, who's the youngest son of the, oh, sorry, the the son in the Lou family um, mm -hmm. in, in this book club. Felix is a kind of rich kid of Instagram. You know, he's mm -hmm. got his family's money and he's like, why would do we have this much money if I don't get to flout it? And and what you start to you start to go oh god is he just one of these people why does he why does he have to consider himself like this it's only going to mean trouble for the family ultimately maybe mm -hmm. this is us being sort of um, uh, uh, again coded from like things like the Godfathers and things yeah. like this like you don't you don't you don't attract all this flashy attention all you're going to do is draw attention to yourself for law enforcement or for competitors or whatever but once you he's get the to, Fredo he's the Fredo he's of the big family big Fredo energy big Fredo you know, energy big yeah. Fredo energy but. The thing is about the Chen's son is that he has all the flash that you're in the casino business, but he has a malevolence that mm -hmm. is like, that it's like the flash is such a more, I think, uh, 
authentic representation of his personality versus Felix. Felix is like the tryhard. This guy mm-hmm. is just the guy and he wears mm-hmm. the flashy stuff and he's in that casino life. And it's, it's the same. Uh, I started thinking about, you know, that they, why there's always those great and they're both tr- true to life tales and the fictional tales about boxes and boxing and how mm-hmm. around boxing, there are all sorts of interest. So we call them interesting and eccentric characters. Usually mm-hmm. you have questionable ba- backgrounds. It's like the panache of the, the sport and prize fighting surrounds people. It's, you know, why does it surround people? Well, it's toughness, it's gambling, it's bravado. It's that sort of thing. And so it's like, it's the kind of like, He's got like a Conor McGregor UFC champion vibe, even though it's like where where he just yeah, it's like gross because it's like very flashy. Gross. It's fla- Conor it's fla- McGregor Blake. Ugh. But it's like fla- <laughs> it's like flashy and but he's also a fighter, so he kind of backs yeah. it up. And that this guy for me, he was like when Chris spots him, he's like, oh, this guy actually is just a sociopath. Like he dresses like this, he does this, but he's a stone cold killer. Whereas Felix is a try hard. And I think yeah. that that's where you get the lose, I guess, who are more old world, more structured, you know, um, more honorable. They feel like they've got more control and there's more shared trust. And Chris is just like, oh no, this guy's a cutthroat. He'll be with you. If you conveniencing him, the second you're in inconvenience, he will strangle you. He will shoot you. He will have you stabbed in the back, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. He, uh, Conor McGregor is a good example. I just find Conor McGregor to be such a tryhard <laughs> yeah, and not yeah. someone who true. I yes, actually perceive malevolence from. Uh, but to me, he almost felt like in Disney terms, like a Gaston. Yes. Someone who is sort of performative uh, in their uh, villainy. Or in television terms, I can never remember if you watch Justified, but there is a villain in Justified named Quarles, who's very well-dressed, very put together, and then you find out that he is, again, just a sociopath who is, like, torturing his sexual partners uh, in horrifying ways that we only see, like, little glimmers of. Um, So there's this great description of this character of Claudio in the book where Chris says he's almost dressed like Michael Jackson. Yes. He's wearing like shiny satin. He's wearing diamonds. He's wearing leather. Vivid, vivid silk shirts, animal prints, heavy eyeliner. Yeah. All of these like luxe sort of high end items. Uh, But there is a core there, an ambition there, a ruthlessness that Chris also recognizes. And I think maybe we should talk about Anna at this point, right? We have to, yes. We have to. So uh, we've talked about Felix. Felix is sort of the wannabe partying son who knows that he's the heir to the Lou fortune uh, and the Lou legacy. He's sort of taken it for granted no interest really in learning the business because it's just going to be his one day. So who cares? Um, He has a younger sister named Anna who is studying abroad. She's reading the economist. When we meet her, she seems very pragmatic and Chris almost finds her a little bit boring at first. Right. And then they're almost gunned down. And while yes. Felix, while Felix is hiding the whole time, 
Anna is right there with Chris in the front seat, like staring down the attackers and trying to figure out what they need to do. Uh, and Chris has this moment where he sees that the family sort of undermines her again because of this old world first son mentality. And he invites her in. He says that she should stay so she can translate for Chris. And I think that's the first moment of the partnership and then relationship that grows between them. Um, but it's this moment for Chris and we sort of see this also in the flashbacks in the book when they explain how Chris and Charlene fell in love. But I think Chris, like Neil, had the ability to tell when people were more than what they initially presented themselves to be. Yes. When perhaps they had been undermined or undercut or diminished by other people. I think Chris has the ability, again, he's just a great reader. Yeah, he's a great of reader individuals. of people. He's a great reader of human behavior. And he sees that there's more to Anna. And then she in turn sees that there's more to him than just the American security guy that her father is now saddled with. So it's one of those moments where they and, recognize and, and something in each other. Say, and the ridiculously hot American security guy. <laughs> Extremely hot. Very <laughs> This hot. is also where she gets to notice just how hot it is when you're dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And and he does have that. He has that. He has that. No one has ever had it like Val Kilmer had it, right? He can, so, he can get it. Val, he can get it. He can get it. Val can get it. But yeah, but I, I love, you know, and this feels like the kind of woman that has become the Michael Mann female protagonist at this point. It's the Miami Vice black hat very capable uh now almost exclusively asian female i'm yes. not sure how to feel about that <laughs> i don't know i don't know what michael mann is like implicitly telling us about his uh preferences but um but yeah there's a sort of like capability to these women that is very alluring to these men and i don't like saying plainness um but they are not necessarily uh like hmm, how do i how do i explain this i feel like they are not hyper feminine yes. necessarily yes they're like engineers and coders and you know like and, and bankers people yeah and, and bankers, bankers. <laughs> so it's just this interesting way it's like in some ways michael mann is giving us like the most masculine men to ever live like stereotypically <laughs> so bank robbers and criminals and murderers and all these people that uh engender dynamics you sort of think as being the most manliest men and then he's also being a little bit subversive about the women that these men fall in love with yes uh and that goes back to like last of the mohicans right like he's always sort of given us a different version of femininity and making that alluring and romantic and sexually charged and all of that stuff that man it's, it's does so any, well. Any dimensionality that they have, 
becomes the most alluring thing. Like when they don't just yeah. present as the thing, right? Like, so you present yeah. as a snooty, you know, uh, economist reading student who's gone over to London and you might feel like you're aloof or outside, but then when it's, when she has the ability to think on her feet and be fearless, it's like, oh, there's something else there. And it's the same with Isabella. Isabella starts out just like as this mm -hmm. absolutely, I mean, look, Gong Li is something else. Um, she's just, you know, she start, starts out as just like this suit. And then mm -hmm. as the movie progresses, you start to see all of that allure that she has, that she's had to squash because to have a conversation, you can't be a woman, you can't be a, a powerful woman in those rooms without having a more masculine energy right. in, in in many ways because it's like you have to be there you can't for a second just be a trophy you have to be telling people present very direct present hyper attentive yeah. and and i think that that's where chris and anna have that little connection and it's also i love that in this part of the book although it kind of grows and establishes you know and gets bigger and bigger as the story goes on it's like we still also don't quite know what to make of them you know, it's, yes. you don't, that's, what's kind of fun about this part. Having read the book a couple of times and going back for this show is like, you, you kind of don't know what to make of them just at the start. Um, uh, 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 Hannah, Hannah Blackman, um, who has is one half of the authorized novelizations podcast, who's actually going to be in this episode as well, talks about like, uh, when we first had a conversation about books, she's like, like he thinks about Neil when he's having sex with Anna for the first time. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're not wrong <laughs> yeah he thinks about luck he thinks about time he thinks about time running out yes. again there is this uh melancholy undercurrent to chris in this chapter that is pushing him forward right yes. he knows the things that have been lost and have been lost to him and he's trying to run toward them but it's an uphill battle neil's not coming back all of his people are not coming back and Charlene and Dominic are on the other side of the world. So what I like is that um, there's very little regret that Chris feels about what's happening with Anna. He doesn't really seem no. to treat it as like, I'm cheating on my wife. It's more, these are the circumstances that I'm in right now. And this is the situation that I'm in right now. And I have to live in this moment and take it as it comes. And that sort of uh, grounded rationality, I think, is also just an under, like a, a uniting theme of man's work, right? It's like you take every day as it comes. Sometimes you plan. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> sometimes you get but in a boat to Cuba. Sometimes, sometimes you, you get in a boat to Cuba. Sometimes, sometimes you, you drop everything and you, you go run hook away. Up with your, your, your best mate's sister, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. <laughs> Just like live life. Carpe diem, right? Like <laughs> seize the sister, carpe sister. Um, but yeah, no, I I I love that I love that it has that outlook. And it's not to, that's not to say like I love that Chris would just immediately abandon Charlene, because I think that that's what's so great about the book is that it doesn't it doesn't position his decision as something that like he should be pining. That's who Chris is. He's different to Neil. He's not pining for what he doesn't have in order to right. move forward. He has to just go, I'm in this now and I'm going to be open to everything. And I'm going to be open to the gamble of adopting this personality of this, you know, fake American 
finance person, whether it's a chain incursion, whether it's external forces to that steel, or whether it's a combination of the both or whatever the case may be, it's like, I'm just in this situation. This is the, this is the girl that's interesting me. I'm going to make my choice. Here it is done. Make the choice. Mm -hmm. It's from page uh, 226. She says to him, there's only so much time. We have a finite number of seconds. Every single one counts, which is what brings down, uh, brings up the Neil thought. And then later on, it says, it reminds him of whose lives he's missing out on. Every second taking away. Make time non-existent, he says. Knock me out. So there is, right? I mean, there's the sense of like falling into the physicality of the flesh. Yes. But also just falling into the possibility of these moments. You're never going to be as young as you are right now. There is a linear march of time that comes for us all. And if this is the person that he's going to be, then this is the person he's going to be. So there's a frankness to that that I think yeah. makes sense for this character yes. uh, in his current iteration. And then the bond that they build right now i thought was very believable although yeah. they're only people who have known each other for like a few weeks it felt uh correct for who we know them to be right now and then it sets up this partnership that is really it goes in places that i did not anticipate in future parts of the book and we won't yes. talk about that because of course you have an array of wonderful guests who will talk about that but how it sort of uh, where the narrative goes after this moment, I think, is really interesting. And the, the chapter ends on that possibility uh, where Chris thinks this is the future. This is the new, new. Yes. Uh, he is as off balance as he's ever been in his life. We don't ever see Chris like that. And so no. to see him like this and to be excited about this is what makes this part really great, I think. Yeah, because it's not an opportunity. Like you look at Neil, he's in a level of stasis. He's mm -hmm. working with Nate. He's working with Kelso, doing mm -hmm. the same sort of jobs. They're the very best at that kind of job. And mm -hmm. Chris is so much more about the possibility of the unknown, whereas Neil mm -hmm. is wanting to squash unknown quantity. And so that's exactly. it's the true difference between those two characters. And they just they bloom. Um, in, in beautiful and different ways. That has been the third episode of the Heat 2 Book Club on One Heat Minute. Thank you guys so much for listening to this epic triptych of amazing characters. Firstly, thank you to Brendan Hodges, who you can find it at Metaplex Movies on Twitter. Secondly, huge thank you to Hannah S. Bleckman, who is at HS Blackman on Twitter. And of course, Roxana Hadadi, who is Roxana underscore Hadadi, H-A-D-A-D-I. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of One Heat Minute on One Heat Minute Productions. Send us an email at mail at one minute.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at, at OHM Pods. I've been your host, Blake Howard, at One Blake Minute is where you can find me. We'll catch you on another episode of Heat 2 as we go around the corner and into the past. Thank you for listening. You know, and it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do 
uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then, he might not have succeeded. It's incredible because, like, if you if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark. A uh, year of living dangerously. Uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of the place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else is even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far, but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way, and we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air, yes. because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to many <laughs> properties there are films of his that i hold very dear fearless uh you know uh, the mosquito coast i will fight somebody if they talk bad about the mosquito coast it's man i love that movie but in general i just think he is a special filmmaker a smart lyrical um hallucinatory filmmaker he's a very dreamy filmmaker and i don't think he gets his due you know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, at, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's a, such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment. In, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old-fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see. Ten of those, you know. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything. And God bless you. But Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things. Again, I, I am not, uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this, Blake. That's right. Our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander.